All right, all right, all right. Let's get to it. First off, it is not Monday as promised, but it is February 29th. It's a leap year. So leaping off with this podcast, chuckle, chuckle, I thought it was a good omen, and I wanted to start getting these episodes out there so you guys could hear them. Top stories in St. Louis, February 29th, 2020. Steak and Shake Parent makes first buys in years as change performance goes from bad to worse. Shocking. Anybody who is looking for a franchise of Steak and Shake, here's how it works. You pay 10 grand, you split the cost and the expenses 50-50. You are guaranteed 100K after your first year. Here's the problem. To start the first year, you have to get that location into gold status. Probably going to take you about eight months working for free. And then corporate has to guarantee that you fill off all these different things the last being that you do not have like more than a point and a half, two percent, something like that, of people writing in about your location not being up to snuff. Here's the problem. Can't guarantee that they don't stuff the ballots, that some competitors don't come in. And if you don't get that two percent or whatever it is, you'll never get the clock rolling on that hundred thousand dollar guarantee. Next. St. Louis is home to one of the worst traffic bottlenecks in the country. We are number 33. It's where 64, 55, and 44 all match up. You know, I had a friend one time. used to, when you talk to him and you say, you know, how's the girlfriend? You know, how's the date last night? And he had a term. It was called geographically attractive. I, I don't know about you, but 44 meeting 64 and 55 Plus all the closings for that XFL team. If you were my friend, you probably would think that the girl had to be, or guy, had to be attractive and rich. I have a prediction, by the way. Engagements where the couple has one partner downtown and one significant other not downtown are going to significantly drop <laughs> until those ramps are opened up. Also of note, Atlanta had three in the top ten. I can believe that. And also, I live near number two in Chicago at 290 at 9094. Good thing I was married at the time. On we go. First Bank sells 14 branches to three competitors. You know, First Bank's the Deerberg Bank. Most locations were rural. That now makes First Bank the owner of 80 banks, down from a high of 220. And they reported, they reported to have made $75 million dollars and profits last year. Last story, it just looks like the Rams. A look at the raucous crowd that welcomed pro football back to St. Louis. Battlehawk fever, baby. Haven't been in a game yet. I am recording tonight's game. They did win their opener. Uh, I got Howard Balzer scheduled to come in on Tuesday of this week. Maybe he'll give me some information and some insight into the team. Nationally, this Tuesday is Super Tuesday for the Democrats. Let's see who survives that scrum. Oh, and I almost forgot. I almost forgot. Locally, saw a tweet today from Gabe over at Power Mizzou. Apparently, like 20 billboards in a Mizzou recruits hometown in Texas have gone up welcoming the kid to Mizzou. I'm not sure if this is a violation. It used to be. But I have personally pitched what an idea it should be, should Missouri should do, near Dismet, have a picture of Stepanovich, big billboard, Tiger Country. On 40, heading into Blue Springs, you know, John Sunvold on the billboard, Tiger Company, wherever the heck Chase Daniel went to high school. Put those billboards up, man. 
Fake it till you make it. Okay, so today's episode is with Terry Black. He is the godfather of St. Louis Barbecue. Now, in the description on the website, I didn't say it was just about barbecue because I wanted folks to be able to hear about Terry's accomplishments and his life away from the smoker. But so that you know, if you've enjoyed any of the award-winning barbecue St. Louis has to offer, those guys and gals honed their skill, their art, with and under Terry. And yes, I called it art, and Terry's canvas is barbecue. Terry Black, everybody. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. So, like uh, like what you're seeing, like the uh, setup? Yeah, yeah. This is, this is great. I'd be willing to bet... Move the mic a, a little not, closer. Yeah. Oh, I'd, I'd be I'd be willing to bet that this is a nicer setup than ninety percent of the podcasts that are out there <laughs> on the internet. Well, yeah. thanks. No, we're proud of it. We uh, you just saw Stepanovich and Grower walking out. Yeah. And so we're just doing everybody that we think is important to St. Louis, and Terry Black is definitely one of them. Let's let's get down to it. So you you're one of the few people that we're going to talk to who are not originally from St. Louis. You're from Arkansas. Right. Grew up in Arkansas, but I've spent most of my life here in the St. Louis region. In in Arkansas, you, where'd you go to school? College? Uh, went, uh, grew up in a little town called Clarksville, Arkansas, over near the Oklahoma border, near Fort Smith and Fayetteville. But uh, went to school at Arkansas State University, home of the then Indians, home of the now politically correct Red Wolves. <laughs> and a good football program. Really good really football good. program. You know, our... Uh, Larry Lacewell put the program back on the map while I was there. There was a, a Hall of Fame coach there, Benny Ellender, in the 60s, who really put it on the uh, map with players like uh, Bill Berge, Hall of Famer. After we graduate from college, what pays the bills? Uh, basically marketing, advertising, sales, that, those sorts of things. And then uh, just while I was doing that for a living – really started honing the craft of, of barbecue with one of my college buddies. And uh, we entered some contests. Our first contest we entered was the official Arkansas State of Arkansas Championship and uh, did not do well in that championship, did not finish high in the least, but learned that hey, this is something we'd like to continue to work on and some folks there who'd been very successful at it befriended us and said, you guys really want to learn more about this? And we go, yeah. I was like, tell you what, come over to our house. We're going to show you our secrets. And, and who, were those, who were those people? And those people were Bill and Patsy Walker, who were uh, pretty big on the early scene of competition barbecue. And uh, they've since long retired. And uh, they were kinder to us than we deserved. But and then through them, we were able to meet other people and and expand our, our knowledge base for what it takes to be a barbecue competition team. And and just like every team that's ever come down the pike, put our own individual spin on. Well, we're not going to be clones of these guys, but we're going to do this. and We're going to do that. And every competition team out there is the same way. They may learn something from somebody. But then they're going to go ahead and put their own spin on it, and 
and uh, just kind of worked out for us. Because that's the tricky thing about barbecue. I barbecue. I have a smoker. Love the barbecue. I like it to my taste. But if you don't like the way I like barbecue, you might say my barbecue sucks. So it's subjective. When you go to a contest like that, how do you deal with the subjectiveness? Or are there stricter criteria that you know you have to achieve? Yeah, well, the all the above. Uh, very, your point's very well made. Um, you over over time, you get a feel for what the community of judges look for. Uh, each judge is different, subjective, as you stated. But then the judges are told to uh, make their scores. Uh, based on parameters so we try to hit somewhere in those parameters and be unique um when we were doing most of our competing the main thing that we wanted to do was try to give the judges a taste that was not only incredible where people would go oh my goodness this is awesome but something that other teams weren't doing you you find that one little ingredient or maybe two little ingredients that gives your flavor just enough uniqueness to where it's like wow that doesn't taste like anything on the table and it's the best tasting thing on the table and it's perfectly tender and it looks like it should be on the cover of a magazine you're in arkansas what gets you to st louis um Channel 5 news channel 5 uh ksdk tv was um hired to come into their marketing and sales department and you know just kind of evolved into the career of barbecue from there so you're selling air yeah here hold some in your hands (laughs) four hundred dollars it'll work don't worry about it yeah don't worry about it (laughs) trust me four hundred bucks is 30 seconds of your life and and uh, thousands of people will see it and three of them will come see you and we've known each other for a long time yeah when did you get the slew scoring gig not long after i started at at channel five one of my fraternity brothers john eckert uh we were just talking one night and uh, he said hey uh we need an extra guy to come help us uh do stats for the tv side of a st louis university basketball game and we had done this together in college as we were pursuing our degrees and I'm like, sure, man, hadn't, hadn't done it in a while, but, you know, it's not, not that hard. You know, I'll show up and uh, wound up doing the last ever Billiken game that was broadcast from the old Keel Auditorium. Wow. And, and the coach at the time was a guy who probably, I think, is going to be featured in this series of broadcasts or podcasts, a guy by the name of Rich Grower. You know what I told him? I told him that you are on record as saying he saved the program. And you know what he told me? When he took the gig, they were thinking about going Division Three. Yeah. That's how close that program came to fold it. Well, he was a true Division One style coach. He did really good things that can't be measured for St. Louis University. And think about it. Set the, the plateau to where the athletic director then – uh, when it was time to replace Rich, that athletic director could go out and get someone like a Charlie Spoon out right. and and bring them to the program. And then once Spoon got to St. Louis, the rest really is history. So I might have blew past that. Explain to folks what it is that you do at the games. I'm I'm an I'm a statistician. I usually do the role that's called official stats. I sit 
right next to uh, the team that enters the official stats on a computer, on a, on a uh, s- form of software that's specific for basketball. And uh, it's the stuff you, you know, look at the next day when, that is official. You know, if player A gets nine, 19 points, then that was put in by those guys. Well, I sit next to them, and I am the official statisticians who sit on the floor. I am their conduit to the production truck for the broadcast, and it's all done in real time and very fast, and I'm on the headset with a guy who can type faster than a court reporter, and when I tell him that, you know, player A is 5 of 7 from the free throw line, as soon as I say it, he types it and it'll hit the air. Talked about Ramsey before doing this. Remmer obviously has been doing the Salute Games forever. He's 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 one of the best play-by-play guys for college basketball in the United States. I just love factual. And I'll fight you for it. I'm not going to fight you for it. And that is the best call I've ever made. (laughs) He tells me, before analytics became a thing, that your understanding of the game and of the math actually was very helpful in his broadcast and him knowing maybe just a little bit more than the other broadcasting teams that were out there. Would you agree with that? Do you know what he's talking about? Well, I know what he's talking about. I'm flattered to hear it. I didn't know he really felt that way. He and I are, are really good friends, and when we get together, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> when we get together, uh, our conversations usually aren't in regards to telling each other how great we are. <laughs> We're just uh, usually discussing, well, what's going on with, with this team they're playing tonight or something like that. But um, we are forced, as statisticians who – work for the television broadcast, we are forced to look for, you know, the little uniquenesses that will blend and, and tie a story together. And one of the things that I always tried to do, because Bob has a television background as well, is I always try to do, is I will uh, hand him a note that has a stat on it that I know is getting ready to come on the air when we come back from break. Well, there are a lot of people, especially these days with the ability to sync your DVR with the sound, there are a lot of people who don't listen to maybe the national broadcasters when we're on national television, and uh, they'll be listening to Bob and Earl do the game. So I'll give that note to Bob so that he, at his choosing, if he wants to or not, he can actually come back with that stat, with that little bit of information. And while he's talking about it, it'll appear on the screen. So it's it's my way of being a, a little bit of an, an executive producer like for both Oz broadcasts. behind the curtain, man. Yeah, you yeah. stuff going on. Oz. The other thing uh, Rammer told me was, before you open Super Smokers, whenever you had the <laughs> opportunity to, to tell him about barbecue or to talk barbecue, that was, that was on your brain 24-7. True or false? Uh, not 24 seven, but, uh, is it was, you know, when I was around those guys, you know, a lot of times they would just start talking about barbecue. Well, I wasn't going to let it lay low, especially because we were in our, uh, the early phase of our prime years on the circuit. And, uh, you know, I just chime in and go, Hey Bob, you know, I got a pretty decent rib. You know, you're talking about these other ribs you ate at whatever market you were visiting to go do Billikens, I'm like, one of these days I'm going to get you one of my ribs and you'll understand what we're talking about. Was that here. when Memphis was in the same conference? Yes. Okay, so everybody knows about Memphis barbecue. Everybody knows about 
Texas and Kansas City and the Carolinas. St. Louis barbecue at this point in time is not in the storyline. Back then, back in the early 90s. You now, open, now St. Louis. Now it is because of you. It's what we're going to be talking about. So when do uh, you open up Super Smokers? Uh, May 25th, 1996. I remember the day better than my birthday. Ask me what day I was born and I'll stutter. As it reads, you were the first restaurant to serve competitive barbecue. Right. Explain that to me. Right. Well, you know, when I first moved to town or moved to St. Louis, you know, uh, in 1991, the, you know, go around and eat barbecue and, and they either had maybe some out of town chain that was here or local guys who at the time really, you know, I called it crock pot barbecue. It wasn't, but, um, it was a barbecue that, didn't have a lot of dry rub on it, was sauced really heavily and sat on a steam table all day, which kind of gave it the crock pot effect. And, you know, that's just not what we were used to. I mean, you know, when you go to school in Jonesboro, Arkansas, that's just about an hour from Memphis. And and the Delta and the, and the Mid-South is well known for people who really know how to take pork or chicken and put it on the smoker and make magic. And as we uh, kind of got into that, to be quite honest, there were some people that came over in, in my backyard, and I hosted a party one. There was a small gathering, but one person happened to be pretty key and, and well-heeled, and they said, hey, I'm having a party over at my house. Would you do this for my husband's birthday? And I'm like, yeah, I'll do it. And then then went over there, and there were more people who were, you know, fairly well healed, you might say. And one person like, where did this person find you? And like, in my backyard. And they're like, well, we're having a party coming up. Would you come do our party? So then the catering business just kind of outgrew, you know, grew out of it. And uh, they said, hey, you know, those trophies, could you bring, yeah, just so I could impress my friends, as in the client would say, so I can impress my friends when you come over, would you bring one or two of your trophies with you? And I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll do it, you know, and, it just kind of grew from there, man. So you've got the restaurant. How come? Well, uh, as we were talking about the catering business, it, it kept growing. And, and my late partner, Ron Skinner, uh, who passed away several years ago, uh, had a really nice big-sized game room in his home. But we outgrew that. And, and to be quite honest, just to do things right, we needed a building that the health department could come um, inspect and, and approve and we were doing everything legit, but we just weren't didn't have the paperwork out of out of uh, you know his home to to do to really do it. So we started looking for buildings, and um, we found this place out in Eureka that was an old hen house, a red barn, and and when we first drove up on the parking lot, I looked over at Ron. He's driving. I go, well, it certainly looks like a barbecue joint. Let's see what uh the inside tells us and we began you know talking to the people who owned the restaurant inside at the time they kind of had this weird uh non-focused tex-mex theme going and to be quite honest the restaurant business was just not made for them and we um negotiated a deal to where we could come in and, and take it over and, and immediately flip it 
into a, a barbecue place, and that's kind of how it happened because we didn't really think that much. We're like, I don't know how well the restaurant's going to do, but we've got enough catering here to make it happen, so we'll just cater out, out the back door and hope for the best on the restaurant on the front side, and it, and it wasn't very long before the restaurant was covered up and we were having problems, you know, figuring out time management to get all the catering done, but it all worked out. So you go into Super Smokers and you've got all the autographs and the pictures on the wall. Right. How long did it take before you became a destination for people coming from outside of town, whether they were entertainers or they were, because, and no offense, but for a lot of those people coming in town, they weren't staying in Eureka. Right. They were staying downtown. So right. when did this start to happen? Or when did you feel it was happening? Well, 40, the good news is it's on 44, so it's out by Six Flags. So a lot of people were, were coming that way, not necessarily staying in the area, but were coming that way on their way to Branson or Springfield or, or even Tulsa. So we had a lot of that natural 44 traffic. And um, the... It happened fairly quickly because we opened in in May of 96. Now, what really, really helped was exactly one week before we opened our doors, we went to Memphis in May, the World Championship of Barbecue, where the Lombardi Trophy for Barbecue resides, and we brought home a third-place trophy out of all the barbecue teams in the world. A sign of things to come. A sign of things to come. That was that was your little first peek behind the door. So word got around that that uh, the success had happened at at the World Barbecue Championship. And remember, this is way before social media. I mean, you're still just newspaper, radio, and TV for any form of real marketing or or word. And and of course, word of mouth. And you know, all of a sudden, the someone comes out and eats and tells the mayor of Clayton, hey, this is a good place to eat. And the mayor of Clayton bring, on a Saturday night brings you know, four, five, six people with him for dinner. And all these different people start circulating and moving and shaking. And, and it really was a, a grassroots campaign that built itself. Who was your favorite visitor? Mark Lamping. Huh. And the reason being, and I, no offense to anybody else, because there were a lot of favorite visitors. But uh, Mark came out one Saturday morning late, right before noon, had his wife with him, and they, uh, they had lunch. And when he walked in, the good news is my staff and a lot of the people there didn't know who he was, but I knew who he was. And I waited until he was finished with his meal just to go over and do the normal thing that any restaurant owner would do is say, you know, thank you for coming in and, and eating. And uh, and I, I did let him know I knew who he was. And at that point, he goes, he goes, um, I have someone I want you to talk to who works in our organization. We have a barbecue area at Bush Stadium, but it's, it's not achieving what we want it to achieve. And... Uh, I'd like for us to explore finding some sort of concept at Bush Stadium that will work. And that conversation led to uh, seven or eight years at what was called, is called Bush Stadium 2. And so there are a lot of people that I could say who are my favorites, but that, that particular visit by Mark uh, really changed a lot of things. 
for super smokers. Now, another cool thing that happened that that that, whole, that story brings to mind is when Ozzie Smith was announced that he was going into the Hall of Fame, they had the, uh, I don't know, press conference or some sort of meeting or some sort of something out at Fox Run Golf Course, which is out near Eureka. Mm-hmm. And what was really cool with that is all the, uh, not all, but a great deal of the people who came out for Ozzie Smith's Hall of Fame announcement that was at Fox Run Golf Course stopped in and had lunch at Super Smokers on their way to Ozzie Smith's Hall of Fame announcement. So, you know, little, lots of little cool things like that over the year. Too many to talk How'd about. How'd you get the Rams gig? Well, once again, see, it rolls so back. So let's backtrack. Sometimes, you know, paint a picture. When you would go to the Dome, you had it set up. You were outside. And inside. And selling like crazy. Right. So, yes, Bush was successful, but from my eyes, what, eight home games a year, they were selling a lot of barbecue in front of the dome. Right. Well, but, again, that's why, and and, and by the way, Bob Wallace, similar story with Bob Wallace, uh, a period of time later, Bob Wallace, who was president of the Rams at the time, came in for lunch with his wife, and I knew who he was. And... Uh, same type of story, went over and started talking to him. And Bob was aware of our relationship with the Cardinals. So Bob would be kind of 1A on a favorite visitor uh, for a number of reasons, you know, being able to go over to his house and cater private parties over at his house afterwards and and uh, things like that. And so Bob came out and had lunch one day, and that led to us becoming a training table partner. And and a lot of really, really cool things that, that happened along the way, not the least of which getting an unused game ball from Super Bowl thirty four that Bob Wallace gave me. That is nice. All right, so yeah. we're ninety six were open in the year two thousand, correct me if I'm wrong, two thousand is when you win Memphis in May, is that correct? Two thousand. I like to say we brought the millennium in. All right, so I've never been to Memphis in May. You described it for me as the Indianapolis five hundred. It's a week-long thing. There's lots of other things that are going on as my vocabulary expands to thing. Walk me through. I'm taking a step back. I just want you to hear me walk you through what Memphis in May is about, and then let's go to what you accomplished in 2000. It's the, it's the Indianapolis 500. It's the Kentucky Derby. It's the Super Bowl of barbecue. There are some really big barbecue contests you know, uh, in, in the country that have significance and prestige. But Memphis and May is the original. It's the granddaddy of them all. And the other ones are pretty well modeled in some really abstract way off of what Memphis and May started 40 years ago or ever how long ago it was. Uh, and there are some real funny stories about the first ever Memphis and May that could take up a, a whole other podcast. But now, Do you have to qualify to get in it? Back then, basically, you did. However, they did have enough open spots back then that if if you were prudent and diligent in getting your application in, you could get accepted. But uh, the easiest way to make sure you're, you're a contestant is to win a regional contest, which we had won over in, in a win Arkansas which qualified us, and uh, we were automatically invited. You know, nothing, there's no scholarship involved. You still have to pay your entry fee, but at least you're like, hey, we have a spot for you. Do you want it? So you won your regional, mm-hmm. and then you got the invite. How many people 
customers are attending Memphis in May? Oh, boy. Uh, well, it's a 30-acre park that totally gets filled up with people. And there are, you know, Friday night is, it, it, it's like, it looks like Mardi Gras in New Orleans uh, on Friday night. And actually, that was back then. It's, it's progressed to the point now to where Thursday night and Friday night both look, actually Thursday night might be the more cool night to go down if you're in the party mode. Uh, we don't, the guys who are serious about cooking, we don't really, you know, participate in that because we really are getting our game face on. I mean, we're, we have fun. Don't get me, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but uh, we're nowhere trying to keep up with the masses on uh, their consumption. We'll put it that way. And the breakdown is by category. Right. Uh, it, uh, there are two different contests that are held. One is on Friday. It's called the Anything But Competition. And what that means is anything but pork. They'll have seafood and sauces and chicken and, and exotic and all, all these different kinds of contests that you can enter. And if, and if you win one, you know, it's a, it's a smaller trophy and it's a, you know, a smaller check but the big categories are on saturday and there's only three contests on saturday well there's actually four there's a there's a backyard patio division and that's kind of a, that's a smaller contest as well and that's a first come first serve on whoever you know first one turn in their paperwork they only have x amount of slots the first 40 or whatever guys to turn in their application get in plus the winner from the previous year obviously but on saturday in the big boy competition, bring your big boy panties, uh, rib, pork shoulder, whole hog. And whole hog is the heavyweight division. I mean, picture a, a wrestling tournament in the heavyweight division. Um, and to tell you that, you know, 120 people will enter ribs because you don't have to stay up all night cooking ribs. About 60 teams will enter shoulder and you do have to have you know an organization in place to where people teammates will watch your smoker for you um, in shoulder but only about 35 or 40 teams have the uh, cojones to enter the heavyweight division is there a minimum weight on the pig yes it has to be at least 80 pounds we usually cook one in the 135 to 150 range but uh, I've seen people win this contest with hogs that uh, weighed nearly 300 pounds. And who's on the team at the time? Your team? Our team. Well, the, the founders of Super Smokers, uh, Skip Steele, uh, who was um, very prolific in helping get Pappies and Bogarts and Adams Smokehouse started here, as well as Daly's out in uh, Valley Park. Uh, Daly's is named after Skip's uh, grandfather skip was my college roommate and when skip first moved to st louis he lived in our spare bedroom for six months before he was able to get his family moved up here uh so skip was on the team in 2000 and and then ron skinner the late ron skinner who actually helped me uh was my partner in helping get eureka established skip was living in jonesboro arkansas you know all this time up until about 1997 so, uh, uh, but yes, I, 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 I often wonder, and I, and I can't even wrap my head around it. So what would have happened had I told Ron, it was a, it would be a bad idea to move skip from Jonesboro, Arkansas to St. Louis, you know, 
how would things be different if Skip had never joined our operations team? Now, he's on our barbecue team, you know. But the barbecue team could be based out of anywhere, and we'd go to wherever and cook in a contest, you know, Murfreesboro, Illinois, or wherever. And Skip would drive over from Jonesboro to meet us. But when Skip moved to St. Louis to join the operations team at Super Smokers, things really, really changed. What does it feel like to win Memphis in May? Well, you politically set aside getting married and having kids and just, you know, because those those feelings are, you know, if you've ever gotten married and been in a good marriage like I have for 30 years, 30 plus, and if you've ever had kids, which my wife has blessed me with doing a great job of raising three now adult children, uh, you know that you can't speak to what a thrill that is uh, as a parent or a husband. So that goes off to the side. And then being the last name that is called at the World Barbecue Championship, and they go, and your 2,000 world champions, first place, whole hog, Super Smokers Barbecue. I mean, I wish we could show the people listening to the podcast right now, but would you tell them what's going on with <laughs> 20 years later? What's going on you with my You got barbecue goosebumps. The hair is sta- 20 years later, the hair is standing up on, on, the, on the arms and the Safe goosebumps to say are that still there. A team from St. Louis winning shocked a lot of folks? Oh, yeah. I think to this day, I may be wrong. But I think to this day, Super Smokers Barbecue is the farthest northern team ever to win first place at the World Barbecue Championship in Memphis. I and you're the only St. Louis er, yeah, in who's yeah. ever won it. Yeah, and if someone does come in and win a first place, then we'll still have the title first ever. But uh, there's been some guys get second and some guys get third. And there's been some guys get like first place slaw or first place wings or some you know something like that but uh those are friday contests those are ancillary contests the big contests are what goes on on saturday and we're we're the only team ever to bring home a first place from a, a saturday the saturday portion of the event the heavyweight does contest. that increase business do people realize that or um, is this more like a notoriety well, thing when we uh in 2000 when we won it um i was talking with a, a local person who is very in tune with the media and they said well it looks like over the past week you've probably gotten over a hundred thousand dollars worth of free publicity mm. be, whether it be radio i mean all i was doing was answering phone calls hey can you come on the show or hey we'd like to interview you for the post post dispatch interviewed me twice two different top angles um every tv station in town um that's how I met Timmy Zell and, and started a friendship that still exists to this very day. What a what a great man Tim Ezell is, and at Fox Two, and and his uh, ministry that he started. So the uh, because of all that publicity, it, it gave us a, a real bump. Yeah, it did increase. Uh, we had one of our our best months as a result of that. How'd you get your sauces? In the grocery stores. That's a funny story. I went over to uh, uh, Centralia, Illinois, to uh, 
ask, almost beg a company over there to start bottling our sauces for us because we were having to make so much of it because the sauces we were uh, making homemade in the kitchen were taking up too much time. And, and we knew we could achieve some economies of scale if we could just give the recipe to someone who would buy tomato paste by the 50-gallon drum, you know. And, and we went over and we talked to the guy, or I talked to the guy. And he's like, I don't know. He goes, I'll talk to my dad and see if we'd do this because we really only do our stuff. We don't do any private label. And I'm like, man, I really would like for you guys to strongly consider this. Just talk about it and let me know. I drive from Centralia, Illinois, I, I, and go straight back to Eureka. My partner, Ron Skinner, is there. And he goes, well, how'd it go? I go, I don't, I don't think the guy's interested in doing it. He goes, well, you're not going to believe this. This guy by the name of Paul from Rivertown Foods walked in while you were gone. And he wants to do our sauces for us. Cool. I had no idea who the guy was. And we were running a little bit at this time. It's not the easiest thing in the world to get shelf space inside grocery stores. Well, that's one of the reasons. Okay, I mentioned Paul from Rivertown Foods. Paul is the creator of the uh, product called Taste of the Hill that you see on all the, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at that time, Schnooks, Deerbergs, and Shop and Save. But uh, now definitely still on the shelves for well over 20 years. I don't know how long at, at Schnucks and Deerberg's and other places. And uh, so Paul is one of the most honest businessmen you'll ever meet in your life and, and highest character and moral values and everything. And so he's trusted. So when Paul would Paul walked in with our sauces to the category buyers at at Schnucks and Deerberg's and Shop and Save and said, "Hey, uh, I'd like for you to try this," and they said, "Yeah, we'll give it a shot." And I went with him on on uh, some of those calls and promised them that I would promote it, you know, via the radio buy that we were using at the time. And I would go out and do various forms of publicity. And anytime I was on TV, I made sure those bottles were, you know, in camera shot and all that. And it caught on. And the grocery stores, you know, it's a business to them. That's real estate. Shelf space is real estate for them. And you only get to stay there if you're producing. Because if it's not selling, they have to put something there that will generate revenue for them. It's nothing personal. It's just business. So the good news is... at this time, St. Louis is a malls town. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. I mean, they they have like 12 spaces. And the national brands. I mean, the thing about it is the, the local grocery chains were covered up in national branded barbecue sauces. Now what gives me great pleasure... When I walk into any of those stores and I'll just, for kicks, go by and look at the, the category and look at what's on the shelf. You know, Super Smoker's still there. But the national brands have really taken a backseat. And I see all these local guys, you know, who are on the shelf now who have good placement. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, way to go, guys. St. Louis, St. Louis locals have taken over that spot. Because I was there when you, that there weren't, Emo's salad dressing bottles. Uh, Emo's was. was there, Emo's so was, but there, there were yeah, no. less than half a dozen. Well, you know, in in the Italian foods category, Italian foods were doing pretty well. They're just the barbecue sauce category was almost non-existent. But uh, yeah, Italian. You know, due to St. Louis being such a big, you know, Italian food 
market. And with the Hill being so well-recognized everywhere, uh, Italian was doing pretty good. But but your point is is made. Um, all uh, What it did, I think what it did was help the local grocery chains go, you know, anything we can do to promote local is going to make everyone look better. It certainly makes Deerbergs and Schnooks look better, but it also helps the entire community. It's kind of like a rising tide, you know, what it does right. with a boat, with all boats. You know, to this day, I still get free football tickets because of your Mississippi mud sauce <laughs> and, the, and the chicken wings. That If you bring the wings, Oliver, we'll float you a couple tickets. Yeah. It's still every year. Yeah. All right, so... When you think St. Louis barbecue now, it's just post Terry Black different. Who's the first person who called you Godfather of St. Louis barbecue? Well, I have to give that credit to George Mayhew, who's uh, you know the food, uh, the 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 leader. I don't even want to use his title. He is the leader. He is the brains. He is the man behind food and restaurants at St. Louis Magazine. And George came up with that term. I. That I had nothing to do with it, you know. I mean, somebody calls you something. It's kind of like, you know, someone gives you a nickname. It, it just whether you like it or not, it sticks. I'm humbled by it. I'm not sure what to think about it, uh, but I will take it as a compliment, as well earned compliment. Well, thank you for saying that. But yeah, well, well, what's great, so well you- he he wrote the story and put it out there, and you can find it about you know the people that used to work at super smokers who have since gone on and, and achieved great things, you know, uh, whether it's the director of culinary services for Deerberg's example, that what's uh, the latest name. That's Marianne Moore. She so was, a, she was charge. our catering. She was our catering director. She's in charge of, of, uh, you know, the cooking schools so and the, and the TV show, the customers, how to cook. Yeah. And she's, she's an excellent, she's not a good instructor. She's an excellent instructor. You know, if you sit in one of her classes, you just walk out of there and go, oh, wow. You know, uh, and very personable and, you know, great personality made for that job. And uh, I was honored one day that uh, Laura Deerberg called me out of the blue and, and said, so what can you tell me about Marianne? And I'm like, I can tell you, you should hire her. And uh, and we had a, a fairly long, productive discussion about her. And next thing I know is... When Marianne was our catering director, she left to become a uh, catering director for the Ritz-Carlton. So when she gave us our notice, I I walked in and said, well, you know how this usually goes is I usually try to get the person to stay. But you've got an offer in front of you from the Ritz-Carlton. So I guess we'll make that part of the conversation real short, won't we? (laughs) And, uh, And then she, you know, other things ha- other things happened in her career and and now she's she's been with Deerbergs for a long time and and uh, it's a great it's a great deal for both Marianne and, and the and the Deerberg family. I mean you can hear it in your voice as proud as you are to walk into a grocery store and see the sauces you're equally if not even more proud of where all these people who used to work with you or have come from people who worked with you and are really being very, very successful at what they do. Yeah, and I take no credit for their success. What what uh, I'm happy about is we were fortunate enough to have them while we had them. These are driven, motivated people who wanted their own success, and they went out and achieved it. And, and I get to say, hey, they were part of our gig for a while, but, you know, uh, I, I don't 
count myself as some great mentor or anything like that. I count myself as a very fortunate entrepreneur who was associated with some people who have gone on and done some, some really good things. For the amateur barbecue out there, what's the most important thing they should be aware of? Ooh, amateur bar. Uh, well, uh, I'll have to give you a, a couple of different layers uh, on the answer there. Uh, really know how to manage your heat and your smoke and really know how to how to formulate a good smoke. You know, you can you can use certain woods that'll give you, you know, sour, you know, or 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 bad, you know, over smoke or or something like that. And again, now that's also uh, a taste thing. Like down in Texas, they love mesquite. It's, mesquite's not really my thing. You know, I I count it kind of bitter. But down in Texas, they they cook with that because it grows in ditches and it's very plentiful. You know, I mean, that's typically how a region decides what kind of wood. Yeah, exactly. It's because that's the most. They've exactly. Got. Yeah. You know, we uh, we were fortunate enough to have lots of apple orchards here locally when Super Smokers was started. So we would go in at the end of the season, right? Right about the time they would bulldoze their inefficient trees that weren't producing apples anymore. And and the the orchard owners were kind enough to let us come in and, and cut up and, and take that apple wood with us. You know, we'd throw them a slab of ribs here and there for for their uh, uh, kindness. And uh, we were always very respectful to their property while we were on property uh, cutting their wood. But had pecan wood been more, I love pecan smoked barbecue, and had and Ron uh, felt as strongly about it as me, Ron Skinner, had St. Louis been an area that would have been more plentiful in pecan, super smokers probably would not have, well, certainly would not have been an applewood smoked barbecue. It would have been pecan wood smoked barbecue. The good news is they're very similar. And when I cook in contests, I blend apple, pecan, and cherry. Covering the orchard. Yeah. Well, it's just a really, it's, I call it a super smoke. When you blend those three, it's a super smoke. My favorite thing to smoke, macaroni and cheese. Oh, that's cool. And we do it with hickory. I can understand that. And yeah. because it's really different. I mean, I like to smoke other things, but... And then the what hit, really the, tastes different is smoked macaroni and so, cheese. And the, and the hickory smoke gets in that cheese. And that, now, the hickory is a very pungent, strong smoke. And, and you're, and Only you're an hour. Okay. Pardon me? Only an hour. Only an hour. Only an hour. Because, yeah, you're right. It, too much, and then it's overpowering it, as opposed to just laying underneath it. Right. And giving it... You can't get that without smoking. There, there's no way to right. replicate that. Well, so. and also to answer your question, you know, uh, it's key to uh, have a good rub. You know, the, uh, the backyarder needs to get their spice blend down right. You know, you got to manage your heat and your smoke. But if you put a, a rub on it that's uh, got too much, too much of this or too much of that, then that's exactly how your your barbecue is, is going to taste. But another thing that's, that's interesting, and Skip had a lot of success with this when he was involved with, with Bogarts, is uh, he would smoke the barbecue baked beans, you know, you can hmm. you not only put that bacon, but put a little bit of pulled pork or, or brisket, uh, and, and, and put them you know, in a smoker. And, uh, and you could also put maybe a, a pork butt on top of those beans while they're cooking. And, and, uh, they, uh, they might not win any cardiac awards, but they will win a lot of taste buds over. Put our sloop hat back on Charlie Spoonhauer. Oh man. Charlie. I think about him all the time. I was just texting uh, some friends of mine uh, about him uh, just a couple of days ago. Uh, there was a game getting ready to come on TV and, and it made me think of him and, and you know, my, my person on the other end of the text was texting back, no doubt. And, and had his own little comments. 
Charlie went to school in Clarks, went to college in Clarksville, Arkansas, where the University of the Ozarks is now. At the time he went there, it's called College of the Ozarks. And uh, he had his friends. And once he came to uh, St. Louis University, I uh, waited several months before I approached him. We were always in the same, or not always, we were in the same room several times. But there were always so many people around him. He was he was unapproachable, not because he's unapproachable, but because you just couldn't get to he's him. He's the or, most approachable or, yeah, guy. He's the most approachable guy in the room, and that's why you couldn't get to him. So anyway, somehow uh, six months later, we're in a room where, all right, here's my chance. I get to talk to Spoon. I walk over to him, look him dead in the eye, and go, so, Coach, your best friends in college were Jerry Wagner, Clyde Trailer, and Lonnie Qualls? And he looked at me like, who are you? <laughs> And I introduced myself, and I said, well, Coach, I graduated high school with Jay Wagner, Kathy Qualls, and Michelle Trailer. I graduated high school with their kids, and they're still good friends of mine today. And from that, mo- from that point forward, Spoon knew he could trust me. Spoon knew uh, I was his boy, and he treated me like I was one of his. Remember and, his place on Union Station? Yeah. Well, that was to, crazy. We would go there after the games. Yes. You know, we had a we had a little huddle group that'd meet down there. That was interesting. At time. And, and now I wasn't always sitting at Spoon's table because sometimes he would have Al McGuire with him and sometimes he'd have Bob Huggins with him and sometimes he'd have who knows who with him, you know, some national sportscaster that happened to be in town. But uh, – uh, but I'd I'd be there with his staff and we'd hang out and have a good time and it, and that's exactly what it was. My one of my favorite stories about him is um, when they played Memphis State one year and this was at uh, what is now called Enterprise Center. Um, St. Louis University led the ball game, the entire game. Never trailed until Penny Hardaway put up a shot at the buzzer to beat St. Louis. And everybody left that, I call it gymnasium, that auditorium, that, you know, arena. We, we, everybody left there like you'd been sucker punched in the stomach by Mike Tyson and Muhammad Ali at the same time. And, and uh, it, was, it was just awful. And I still am, feel horrible thinking about it and dredging it up and talking about it. But, so the next day, Spoon had a press conference. And one of the reporters threw the obligatory first question out there, and nothing too hard. Well, Coach, what do you think about that game last night? And he said, well, now that we have better barbecue in this town, there's really not much to like about Memphis. <laughs> and that that's just one small example of how Charlie did so many things for me. He was that kind of guy. His biggest attribute was probably the ability to make you think he's not the smartest guy in the room oh. and him knowing he's the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. The little, little shucky shucky. He, he may not have all – it depends on who was in the room because Spoon could hang with some pretty smart people. So, But uh, most of the time when I was in the room with him, he was the smartest guy in the room, but he didn't want anybody thinking about it. That You're, you're right about that. He, truly a truly a humble guy and just – my goodness, the the personality, the wit, the the way he carried himself, and and the way he looked at life, uh, it, it really was a shame that that he was taken at at such an early age. What's the next stage for you? Who do you get? You gonna open up more restaurants? You're done with that? You're looking into things? You want to keep it quiet? 
Uh, you know, uh, I've I've bought a uh, a small business that I'm running now, and you know, uh, one of these days uh, I will sell it to entrepreneurs. You know, open businesses, and then you know, run them for various reasons. I'm not a guy who's into generational pass downs uh for my business endeavors uh my adult children all have uh figured out what they want to do so uh i like building businesses up that i can pass on to other people that i admire that can do good things with them just like uh i i was fortunate enough to be able to sell super smokers out in eureka to a guy who um had spent some time on our barbecue team yeah jeff fitter and and think the world of Jeff. And when I sold it, at, I'd been in the business 21 years, and it was just time for me to go. And um, went to Jeff, or Jeff approached me and said, hey, you still want to sell it? And I go, yeah. And But I told him that, you know, there's 10 things that if I were to keep it another 10 years, these 10 things need to be done. And Jeff, not only within a shorter period of time than I thought he could went out and did those 10 things, but added probably another 10 things to it and has a really nice business in Eureka, Missouri. And that's, uh, you talk about, you were talking earlier about people I'm proud of. Well, I'm very proud of him because I would like to see super smokers continue. And I would like to see him be very successful. And he's, he's doing that. Did you end up taking that XFL gig? Yeah. You're working with the XFL. Right. You're a statistician. Right. But you're not doing it in St. Louis. Actually, I am. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, right now, the only games I'm doing are the XFL home games for uh, the Battle Hawks. Okay. And uh, my buddy, John Eckert, who introduced me to the uh, Billikens broadcast and statistician work, uh, he is working with me on that, on that project. Uh, along with a, another local guy that I'm not sure I have his permission to mention him on the podcast. So, so you I'm haven't been to any games yet, but you've um, been in the practices. We have we have been in training. We have simulated a broadcast. We have acted like we were doing this, and we're ready to go. Who is the play-by-play in the simulated broadcast? Well, we uh, we recorded their first ever game that they did. Um, that was on ESPN and then we played it back on technology and, and played it, uh, acted like we were in the stadium. So it was the very first ESPN broadcast that we, uh, played around with. Are you the godfather of the XFL? (laughs) (laughs) I, I am the nobody of the XFL. I am the, uh, barely made the cut uh, uh, of whoever's here for the XFL. Do you do a Marlon Brando imitation? <laughs> Couldn't even begin to try one, you know. That about changing the license plate? G-D-F-T-H-R? <laughs> no, that's on my radar screen, Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> You're young enough yet. You know, you got to be thinking this through. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just, I just try to, you know, uh, someone was talking about, uh, uh, well, we were, we were, uh, congratulating my uh, father-in-law for making it to 85 years old and soon to be 86. And I said, man, I just want to make it to day 85 of the year 2020. <laughs> there are some days <laughs> just like, yeah, give me to tomorrow. 
Yeah, exactly. So no and stuff like that. Uh, the XFL um, early returns are it's it's a really good product. Uh, I it, it appears that they know their place in all of this, and uh, one of the things and there's many things I like about it is one of the things is uh, it appears to me, my opinion only, that they are not trying to be something that they shouldn't be. Right. And uh, and St. Louis is a football crazy town, so... If I go to a game, can I get super smokers? No. I, I, well, have, no, I, have, I have no idea what the concessions are going to be there. You know, I shouldn't say no. Uh, Jeff may have worked a deal with them for all I know. for extinction. That's the one thing. Well, yeah, here's what you can do. You can go buy Eureka, pick some up, and take it with you. <laughs> all right, you're a good dude. I'm glad. You know, the whole concept of this podcast is the document people, places, and events important to St. Louis. And when it comes to what we are now known for across the country, we're in everybody's top 100, Pappies or one of the barbecue yeah. places are, and that does not happen until you win Memphis in May and start to teach other folks how to barbecue. Well, the yeah, and one of the things that I, that I did do, you know, I always wanted to promote barbecue, period, not just super smokers. I wanted to promote barbecue, period. I did a lot of uh, cooking classes in years past at the K- Kitchen Conservatory there in the Richmond Heights, uh, Clayton area there near the Galleria Mall. And that was a great way to promote barbecue because think about it this way. Like Michael Jordan said, uh, I think Jordan said this, you know, if a kid doesn't like basketball, we don't even have an opportunity to get him as a fan well if someone doesn't like barbecue you know you don't have a shot anyway you know uh you know the the vegan community could care less about us you know so and that's not a shot at the vegan community it's just a point to be made so um that's that's how that all kind of works out for me um what else it's good time to go do seven and seven Okay. So, okay, there it is. One for the books. If you want to follow us, find us, like us, everything is OT with Oliver. OT with Oliver. If you have an idea for an episode, email it to OT with Oliver at gmail.com. On that note, I want to thank Jackie Smith for sitting down this week and taping an episode with us. We talked about his childhood, his path to the St. Louis Football Cardinals and his involvement with the unbelievable Vietnam War replica in Perryville. You got to go check it out. I usually wouldn't tease this because he's not going to be on next week. It'll be a week after or a couple weeks after. But you got to go to americaswall.com, americaswall.com. And as we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.